This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm joined by one cool cat, Paul Webb, a technologist fully immersed in the world of motorsport, in particular, Formula One. Paul and I kick around all kinds of topics related to Formula One and technology. And as F1 enters its summer break, Paul helps me to understand how big data and data analytics are being used to provide the engineering mystique and show it's less abracadabra and more ones and zeros. Grab your helmet and join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. So, Paul, everybody's going to be intrigued when we throw terms around technology, data analytics, Formula One, racing. Do not disappoint in this conversation. I'm looking for good things. The secret sauce. We'll, we'll add some secret sauce, I'm sure. It's, it's, you make it sound like it's some sort of mystery witchcraft universe, but it's really just physics and people having fun on, on a racetrack. So we'll delve in and see what we can we can dig out of it. But it's it's very interesting world to, to be involved in. You know who's irritated with you right now? All your druids that are over there in the engineering group that have got the whole world fooled that it is magic and it's candles and it's alchemy um, they want the world to think that that it's actually not bits and bytes and data analytics and whatever they're like great paul just messed it up because right now they're yeah. rock stars i get to pretend like they've they're in touch with the supernatural and you're gonna debunk that well yeah i mean they do stand around stones but that's generally you know just <laughs> the way they they act normally. We, we, we'll provide desks nowadays now so they don't have to use the stones it's quite uh, quite good but it is it's it's it is engineering but it's just sprinkled with fairy dust that's what makes it so interesting people, people engineering that sits underneath an aeroplane is kind of well it's obviously necessary but right. it is a little dull but if yeah. you see something coming past you at 200 miles an hour well that that that's well assuming it's a car and not something nasty i mean that's right. that's going to grab your attention so that's why people look at motorsport differently than they do other engineering challenges right well we don't know exactly how long human beings there's all kinds of theories about how long humans have been wandering the earth but let's just say that for the last 15 or 16000 years we've been writing stuff down on walls and and building monuments and all this other stuff. And from then until about 110 years ago, they would have looked at you like you're insane if you said an aeroplane is not, is dull. It's not magical. It doesn't have very, because we've become so used to it, much less a, you know, a spaceship or a rocket or whatever. We've become so accustomed to that kind of engineering that it doesn't seem magical now that human beings can fly. I had a guest on Paul a few weeks ago who uses the wingsuit. Do you know what I'm talking about with the wingsuit? Yeah, yeah. Literally was in, I think it was Italy, Spain or Italy, um, someplace with really good food. And he had spent a month <laughs> over there diving, jumping off, diving off the side of mountains. And I'm watching these 30, second, uh, 30 to 90 second flights not falling, 
literally flying up and through the valley and out and over. And uh, it's, it's insane um, as we figure out the rules and the laws of the universe around us and apply um, mathematical equations and engineering and ingenuity and advances in material that we, we're starting, I, I don't want to say control the world, because I think that's probably a little too much arrogance. Mother Nature reminds us all the time we are not in control. But but the ability to manipulate these things just seems uh, fantastical. And it cracks me up that we've had, we're so used to some of these engineering marvels, they're just dull to us now, you know, eh, whatever, until you go to an F1 race or a NASCAR race, and that massive machine comes by at 220 miles an hour with 40 of them all around you, it blows your mind. But you still have to think someone did that thing first. So yeah. some some guy strapped a suit on and thought, I reckon I can jump off this mountain. You know, oh, there may have been some physics behind it. It wasn't completely insane bet that he had one night. Yeah. But it's it the 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 analogy I have from motorsport on that is when MotoGP had launch control. At some uh -huh. point, someone was told sit on that bike, give it 100% throttle and dump the clutch. And you're not going to go into orbit. Yeah. I mean, somebody believed the technology, someone did believe to the physics, you have, there's a lot of um, faith in the physics that the human bit of the motorsport environment isn't going to wind up pl plastered all down a pit lane or something like that. So, yeah. so yeah, there has to be a leap of faith when you do the next step. I admire those people. When I was a kid in high school, our neighbor um, was a chief test pilot for NASA. His name was Don Malik. I believe he's still with us. And his friends were Chuck uh, Yeager, Joe Walker, uh, uh, who's who, at least there in California, out near um, Edwards Air Force Base, where they used to land the shuttle of these, these in particular in the 50s and 60s of testing not just spacecraft but they their picture on the on the wall of them flying the jet suits like we used to see in the cartoons and um you know the sci-fi shows yeah and what a lot of people don't talk about is how many times it went wrong like how many things exploded how many things crashed how many lives were lost but they just they didn't have blind faith like they, while they were i don't know if bravery is the word i'm looking for certainly mavericks and courageous but they believed in the physics and they felt like where it went wrong was a mathematical error and they needed to get better and tighten. And I don't mean that like they were like, it was unimportant to get it right because of the consequences. It was certainly, but they, they um, for most of them, they kept pursuing a few survived to old age, not very many. Some of them went on to be astronauts, but it's remarkable when people put their brains together to think like that and then craft uh, the metal and the plastic and the electronics around them and the things that they thought in 1959 or 1962 were state of the art, unbelievable today. There's no governing body on earth that would let you get one of those things out on the track. Cause it's a death trap. Isn't that funny? I wonder what it'd be like yeah. in 20 years from now. Well, you only, you don't have to go back that far. If, if you ever, I don't know if you've been to the Goodwood festival of speed, Mm -mm. which if you haven't, it's an amazing event mm -hmm. that happens in July every year um, at Goodwood House. Um, the Duke of Richmond, 
who is also Lord March, or it's the same chap anyway, he opens <laughs> up his house to motorsport and his his front drive is a hill climb event for four days and they have every year it's there's a theme it's um ferrari or porsche or le mans or formula one or something or other so they have vehicles coming back through the ages and Mm. it's amazing you can you can get to see nigel mansell well not every year but say nigel mansell drive his 1992 um, champ car up the hill the the Newman Haas car still in all the right kit and everything and you know I wasn't fortunate enough to see champ car in the mm-hmm. US I, I saw it out when it came to the into Europe but uh-huh. you know see that car go up the hill and it, it's amazing and you you think oh that's incredible and you remember watching it on television thinking ah, oh, as you say state of the art amazing you walk up to the thing now and yes death trap yeah guy's head is sticking up all over the place and there's no halo or head protection and 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 going back even further than that you know you're sitting in a bath of fuel but it's it i guess it's the times have changed haven't they you know post the second world war people had you know two years earlier they were being shot at so what's driving a racing car quickly that's probably just a sort of sunday afternoon activity so i think our our expectations society expectations have changed but if it stops people being splattered all over a racetrack then it's obviously a good thing but even in the 20 odd years i've been doing it you you look at the cars then and think god dear i wouldn't go anywhere near that now yeah but um, I was fortunate enough to drive a Formula One car, not because I've got any great ability or anything, but it was on my list of things I'd like to do before I'm too fat and stupid to not do them. <laughs> and I paid money. Right. And um, it was a 1988 Tyrrell and, um, you know, patently not a, a front running car, but even so, right. it, it's an amazing experience. Even a back of the grid, you know, I, and then it would be. 15 year old car or whatever it's astonishing for normal humans to 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 drop in these things and and just see what they're like you watch stuff on television as you said the 40 odd cars whizzing past you 200 miles an hour it's impressive right but your armchair viewer is going to look at this oh yeah that's right yeah and video games i think have probably blurred what people think is you know you know physically possible to do because right. well i can do that on a playstation 5 how hard can it be but right. the g-force and the the you know just the sheer physics of the thing even an ancient car really gets your attention right. and I, I i i i thought well i'm probably not going to do this again because it's unlikely i'm going to get called up to um, replace some formula one driver who's got a cold or something so i paid for 13 laps by the end of it i was finished and you just think hmm i you know i'm average probably at pedaling a car around i certainly wasn't taking it anywhere the limit because as soon as you spin these things or park it in the wall your your day's over and if you spent a load of money you really don't want to do that right how on earth do these guys do this on a sunday afternoon i mean all forms of motorsport we're not you know not formula one obviously has colossal g-forces and things that they have to overcome but nascar you know 500 mile race right whether you're driving it in a nascar or in a you know 
a mini or something 500 miles is still 500 miles it's not right. uh, it's not something just to take lightly and then right. you chuck in 200 miles an hour and corners and things it's it's an engineering and physical challenge that i it's very hard for people who who sort of watch it casually to really get the full impact of um there was a thing at silverstone i was at yonks ago that it, you you got to go have a ride in a touring car i think it was top gear live or something or other mm -hmm. from ages ago and um david leslie who was in the um, nissan team at the time there was a premiere and they they'd sort of vaguely bolted in a passenger seat to go in it you know and you you strapped yourself in and he looked at you and thought and then just set off and it it was terrifying you know, this was a touring car, British touring car. They're one of the right. super tours at the time. Now, they were a fairly decent engineering challenge, but you just, your brain is like, I'm going to die horribly. I'm going to die horribly. And he stands on the brakes and goes through the corners. So, and that's not an aerodynamic car. That's, that's a racing car. And they're also physically hideously uncomfortable because they're not designed for comfort. Obviously, they're designed for, for performance. Yeah. And I still think that's hard for people to grasp. If you if you, you can buy a football now and kick it around the street, you know, hey, it doesn't make you David Beckham, but it, you you at least kick a football around and you sort of get it. Right. So motorsport is is a difficult one for people to get the enormity of it, I think. But yeah it still doesn't stop it being popular and stuff yeah. like drive to survive has been brilliant in the, in a global sense to get the characters pop out because it's, you know, watching a helmet whiz past at 200 miles an hour, you don't understand the, you know, the heroes and villains and, and, and more of the, the backstory that goes on. And I've been, you know, fortunate to be involved in it for a long time. And you, that's what I thought was missing for ages just knowing who the engineers were and and that sort of thing the thing that i think would make it amazing but it's probably not going to ever really happen because they don't the teams and governing bodies wouldn't allow it is is the the full radio chatter mm. you you get the canned stuff that's just sort right. of good for tv but there's so much interesting stuff goes on um, between the driver and the engineer in, in a long race, the cars change. Right. You know, they run it, they, they burn through fuel, they wear tires out, they, you know, things get hot or cold or whatever. And right. it's, it's, it's a, a, a living, breathing thing that's forever changing that people are trying to just keep it on, keep on top of it. And obviously some teams and drivers are better at it than others, but no one who goes racing is an idiot. Well, right. I mean, there's well, a matter of opinion there, but, but, you know, you don't get to be a professional racing driver by just thinking, I can drive a car, I can right. race, you know, right. you just, you know, there's licenses and sort of all stop sort of right. checks and balances to make sure you just any old fool doesn't get given a steering wheel and told to have a laugh, but it, it, it's still amazing that, you know, the, the levels that, that, that people can, can achieve. And yeah, it's a crazy uh, choreography. I'm, I'm curious. I've been to, um, I've never been to a Formula One race. I've been to IndyCar races, Indy 500 in particular, back in the late 80s, which uh, I don't, I don't know if it's just my nostalgia, but it was, you know, Rick Mears, the Unser's, yeah. the Andretti's, uh, Danny Sullivan. I mean, just Emerson Fittipaldi, this amazing I think I went in 80, it was either 88 or 89, I don't remember. And it was, um, 
we were just just in the exit of turn one so we could see him about yeah. two-thirds of the way down the front straight through one and two and then you know a few hundred meters past the exit of two and when they came through the cars we weren't there for any practices we had no experience other than the parade lap which was oh that's pretty cool yeah. they but it wasn't super impressive <clears throat> and then they lined them up and they came down that front straight away Paul, when they hit turn one at speed, if it had taken them any longer to go by, I would have embarrassed myself horribly by screaming. I could not believe they were 30-ish little F-16 fighter planes that came screaming, but I don't know how they stayed on the track. And by the time you looked and started, you know, kind of recovered, I was there with my wife kind of laughing, like, what did we do? They're back, like that fast. And it, it felt yeah. like it anyway. And then I've been to many NASCAR races, the big super speedways at Talladega and Daytona, small, Atlanta, which is probably the fastest track, uh, short tracks, other tracks around the country, California and Texas. And one of the things you reminded me of was we take our scanners and our headsets and we're able to listen to um, the communication between the driver and the team. So not necessarily what the team's talking about, but we can hear, you know, amongst the engineers or whatever, but we can hear from the pit boss to the driver. Yeah. But just as entertaining, we can listen to the announcers. So whether it's the television or the radio, when they when they go off, you know, they're not live, they're taking a break. Yeah. yeah. They are just as funny or obnoxious or rude <laughs> as any of these other because most of them are ex drivers or certainly they've been around it for a long time. And they will uh they'll let loose their comments. They won't do it on the broadcast, but if you're there listening, you can but it's it's amazing to me the first you get that visceral when these vehicles come by it reminds me of the first time i went to a horse race um yeah and you're you see the horses and you can kind of hear but when when 20 horses come by wide open at speed and you are down at the track it sh it you physically you could see why this is the sport of kings it physically shakes you the power of them coming by i imagine the ancient chariot races were like that and this is probably not dissimilar with these vehicles coming by and all of this other stuff. It's probably a lot like ancient chariot races of uh, gladiators out there competing. And just the the raw power uh, of that experience is what is addicting for people to come back again and again. I think less lions get sacrificed these days. Well, let's hope. But, you never yeah, know. We don't know all that. The, there are things behind <laughs> the scenes. But um, so how did you get involved? How did you get tied up in all of this? This seems like a... A kid's fantasy come true. Yeah, I, it, well, like all these things, it, it, you have great ideas of, you know, when you're at school, if, you know, what you might like to do, which usually involve nothing practical or even humanly <laughs> likely. And, and I, I wasn't into motorsport particularly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I remember the first thing, the first time I ever watched Formula One was, and I, it's, it's a weird one of these ink moments that's, that still stands in my memory. It was, it was this 1978 Italian Grand Prix, which mm. was held in Monza, as it always is. Right. And I'd never seen it on a color television but the family over the road had one. And um, the, one of our friends said, Formula One's on. I was like, yeah, all right. And it, it wasn't a, you know, we were, had nothing better to do. So we all trooped in there and there's, right. there, there was food available. So I thought, oh, this sounds nice. reasonable. Let's sit there. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd seen it in colour. And it was like, oh my God, this is, 
what, what's all this? This is right. This is exciting and unbelievably exotic. Italy could have been, you know, on Jupiter as far right. as I was concerned. And it's just everything about it. I don't know. I don't know really why I suddenly got, ah, oh, this is great. I don't know anything right. about it, but it's, it's great. And I got hooked on the black and gold lotuses, the Lotus 78s. I think all 79s, I think it was, Mario Andretti and Ronnie Peterson. Don't know why, particularly, had no idea about the other teams, never really heard of them. But something about that day obviously lodged in my brain. And after wandering out of there, I never really quite forgot it. Mm. So um, my dad was into cars and he used to buy motorsport magazine and stuff, which I, you know, until that point, it was just a green magazine that turned up. And I sort of, oh, that's that's that was what was on the telly you know so I'd read through it and I'd start to learn a bit about you know there was more to it than just you know an hour and a half on television on a Sunday so I sort of understood the heroes and villains and learned about Colin Chapman and (laughs) and then because Lotus for no apparent reason became my sort of team I, I sort of looked back in the history and learned about um, Jimmy Clark and Graham Hill and the Lo- the the Lotus um, Cosworth combination from '67, where it suddenly suddenly invented a structural the, the engine became a structural member of the car and it it you know it annihilated everybody else that year. So, oh, that's clever. And then you look back and further and rear engine cars from Cooper. You know, they suddenly see these hulking great things in the late 50s convert to these really small cars with the engine in the back and so ah and I had several of these moments where it was like and the six-wheel Tyrrell and I mean there seemed obviously more innovation in those days in the in the late 70s early 80s um well there was ground effect obviously um changed an awful lot of it which was you know a a lotus inspiration Mm. So I don't know quite what grabbed me, particularly whether it was the engineering, the, you know, it was like a James Bond film every two weeks, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't even on the telly that much. And then I discovered Autosport magazine. So I'd get my Thursday fix of reading about this sort of stuff. And uh, amazingly, journalists become sort of he- heroes. You look out for particular journalists because you like the way they write and the detail. Right. And um, yeah, but I, I was a, just a, normal person and never thought I could possibly get into this you know went to average school and you know didn't have any great ambitions outside of that so um yeah just kind of left and got a normal job and but was but was always a fan and um and around that time discovered go-karts now there was no way I was ever gonna perform miracles and become some sort of superstar but I turned out to be quite handy and we started off doing these corporate cart things indoors when we could and I I I was quite good and tended to finish quite far up and so I thought Mm -hmm. well I like this and at the time you know ran into a few people who you know also like these sorts of things and became friends with them and stuff but couldn't you know couldn't imagine getting outside of that area um and anyway this I used to do this the um, sort of um, racing it's not not professional but it was sort of amateur um, team 
racing endurance racing in carts and stuff and we, and we we took it quite seriously and um the little championships that we 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 did we were relatively successful but again met lots of other like-minded people mm-hmm. so anyway years went past and um i was doing it you know making computers chat to other computers type of stuff in in the very um unglamorous environment of um water treatment so <laughs> i was contra- i was contracted to thames water at the time <clears throat> mm. so which they're the main water supplier for the london right. area so they right. do fresh water and wastewater and stuff and obviously you don't want to get it wrong because right. you know people are yeah. people are object to walking around in stuff they don't want to or not having fresh water so yes yeah, not very motorsport and then a friend of mine from karting and other history just called me out of the blue and said well, i've got a job for you and i'm thinking really what would this be he said i'm just about to leave a job but you'd be perfect for it i'm thinking uh, right so and he said it's going to it's in, it's all in motorsport it's it's selling stuff into racing i'm thinking great but why me i mean right. it's just am i the last person on your list that you thought you might give it a shot to but he, he was basically you know you're a fan you understand you know how how the jigsaw pieces go together the politics of people and people that we used to know in the karting world who worked in teams you know mm-hmm. give them a shout you know you right. can, you've got more chance if you've got some contact and you know the odd person and you can say hey i fancy a cup of tea and can i talk to you about stuff right. so i thought what have i got to lose sewage treatment works or formula one eh, it's right. not, a diff- not that much of a difficult conversation so i applied for the job and obviously had vaguely enough talent to pass the the interview and um yeah i've been doing it ever since and it's i mean what what i do is we supply uh, harsh environments electrical components Mm. and in in, and it's there it's the same sort of stuff that's used in missiles and aircraft and um, military vehicles and stuff but it's perfect for for racing and um this this was obviously happening before i joined the party but um it was it was invented motorsport specific stuff was invented in 1993 so it's it's actually a relatively new phenomena um before that racing cars weren't actually terribly technically com- you know complex mm-hmm. they were you know lots of aluminium and, and prior to that there was obviously some carbon fiber appearing right. in the sort of late 70s early 80s mclaren was pioneering that but i mean that was an exotic material but the actual essence of a racing car then was relatively simple and compared to now it's very very simple and you, right. you didn't have data that you could get off it particularly you were re- relying on the bloke behind the wheel telling you stuff and someone who engineered you interpreting that and and making the car go go quicker but at the time teams were technology had moved to create smaller and smaller boxes that could record data now in the in today's terms it's it's recording five minutes of stuff but right. it, it's still the 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 chances were you you could record something live on a car yeah uh, the, the, up till then you had people drawing them on drawing boards um there was the use of a wind tunnel but correlating all of this between what goes on on tarmac and what goes on on paper was was 
actually impossible. But technology had had moved to the point where people were wanting to wire things up and have sensors that didn't break after five minutes, actually recording data for a, a prolonged period of time that could be looked at and interpreted. I mean, some of it was just the functionality of the car. Are the temperatures right? Are the pressures right? Is it about to explode horribly? But other bits were actually the dynamics <clears> of it. What happens when the wheels turn, when the pedals are pressed, when the center, the, the center of gravity or the, the, the balance, the, the air pressure balance moved fore and aft or the yaw of the car as it goes through a corner. Mm. Can we measure this? Well, actually we can now to a certain extent mm -hmm. so you've got three pillars really you've got the you've got cfd computational fluid dynamics which is a a computerized air uh, a wind tunnel you've got the wind tunnel and you've got reality and what you need is all of these three things to tell you the same result and data is is at the the core of this and understanding it interpreting it getting it off the car reliably and the stuff we provide is 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 really the reliability. You know, you, you you can't afford for this stuff to drop out. Racing cars these days are incredibly expensive. As soon as you fire the things up, money is draining heavily around um, and out of the garage. So you can't wait for you know you, you can't waste any time at all while the things firing up and, and trundling, even trundling down the pit lane. There's data being gathered and right. and, and information you can you can work from. So it's a critical infrastructure. And what does amaze me now is um, you, you can be standing in a garage or pit lane or whatever, and it's, a, it's an interconnected web, which is obviously a good name to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, you could be talking to somebody if you press the, your headset in the factory 5,000 miles away or on the pit wall five feet away from you. It's and there's so much interconnectivity and data that's moved on in even the short time I've been doing this. So, you know, you, you go back to talking about your uh, NASA friends driving, you know, <laughs> vehicles through the sound barrier and stuff, right. you know, that, that 1950, the first Formula One car, it's almost an unrecognizable beast compared with, you know, the 1970s, the 90s, today, the evolution of it is all, it's incredible how, how things have changed. And it is all about understanding and, and getting data and, and using that data to make things better, lighter, faster. And right. Before we dive more into that, I, I, it, just two comments. One is, it seemed, at least from my perspective, <clears throat> in any of these um, whether sports or whatever that we're talking about, seemed like the innovation was wore on their sleeve, meaning there's a big wing up front. No, now the big wings out back. Nope. There's a wing on each. The tires are wider or narrower, or the scoops are different. The shapes different, the engine plate, like you, you'd see these really each year. There's a really big difference. Sometimes even within the year, very distinguished distinguishable looking vehicles like some are just yeah. wildly more different and so as they were experimenting or chasing um <clears throat> you know some development either in a material or in an aerodynamic advantage or whatever it was even somebody who didn't know the sport could say well that looks a lot different the other is um a lot of it was in silence 
you know, in the early days, there wasn't a lot of radio comms, certainly not reliable radio comms, uh, whether it's in right. test no, pilots no, or racing or whatever, very, very little, if any. And so most of your race or your event was just you in your head. There was no coaching. There was no, uh, uh, it, it was a different kind of mental game than it is now. And one of the things that so many of these programs has have let us see is all the things that are happening behind the scenes, but also in that communication. But I just, it seems to me like those developmental decades, you could see the innovation. They were really big blocks, successful or unsuccessful. And a lot of the uh, participation was in silence. Do you think that's a fair way to think about that? Without a doubt, um, radio comms is still terrible, frankly, in some simulations. You know, we're yeah. in, tw in 2023, we can send people to the moon. Well, well we're probably giving it a go again. Right. But yes, the other side of Le Mans, the guy could be driving to Paris for all you know, because you couldn't tell what was happening. It has improved. You've got repeaters and things like that right. nowadays. But but even now, you know, on the IndyCar coverage at the weekend, they were talking with... <clears throat> Um, Pato Award before the race started and it, you know the, from the comms booth and it was at uh, Barber so it wasn't a huge track and even right. then the, the, the comms were terrible right. so you know it, it that bit well in in the early earlier days obviously you had your pit board and that was all you were told right. what was going on so yeah it, it, they have been living in in a bit of a bubble but I, I think is your point of how cars looked a lot different if you took all, there's the adage that everyone moans about nowadays, you take the stickers off all the cars, could you tell one from another? You <laughs> you do have to be on the fairly, <clears throat> fairly high level fan level to go, oh, it's a Ferrari, obviously, right. rather right. than, oh, yeah. But in the 70s, where you had, you know, six wheels or a fan car or a ridiculously high air scoop right. or something like that, yeah, you, you didn't have to be a mega fan to, right. to point out, who was NASCAR, right? A Chevy was a Chevy, a Ford was a Ford, a Dodge was a Dodge. And you could, I mean, there, they sounded different. They looked different. They smelled different. Uh, I grew up, my dad um, was an amateur racer of motocross and um, terrible. He would tell you he's terrible. To me, he was a hero. And when you were talking about your story of getting your dad, you know, your dad's um, magazines, my dad couldn't tell you who has raced a dirt bike race uh, in the last 40 years. Um, I could tell you probably every champion in almost every division. Uh, just two weekends ago, we were at the big dirt bike race here. I've been to the motocross donations when it's come to the States a couple times. Um, just uh, every week waiting for my motocross action or my cycle news, which is more of a weekly periodical to read and see. And I could tell you just from the sound of back then, the sound of the engine was at a Mako. Was it a Suzuki? Was it a Yamaha? Who, who was it? Now they sound very, very similar. They look other than the colors. They look very, very similar. And unless you're a super fan, um, it's difficult at a distance to just casually, other than the colors, know they're different. But the engineering underneath them, the ergonomics of them are, are they ride wildly different to those people or those engineers. The people who ride them are the engineers who work on them. Um, they're wildly different to them. And that the same as Formula One. I mean, the, the, even in the 2000s, where you had V10s, V12s, V8s, 
you you could tell who was coming past. I remember I was at Silverstone and the the Prost, I think it was the Prost came okay, was shows a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Olivier, it was the Mugen Honda engine anyway. Mm-hmm. And that went through your soul. It was one of those that you just sort of, you know, it made you sort of screw your eyes up, the sound of it at that particular corner or that, right. that frequency or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, you could, de- you definitely had different, different, uh, um, uh, um, audio and right. physical effects off them. Yeah. But and now if you look at a Formula One car with its clothes off, when they do allow covers to come off, uh-huh. or we, you have see, seen them at the factory or whatever, the packaging is unbelievable. You know, there's no no gaps. There's right. it, 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 you, the what what you can do in CAD is repeatable now in the real world to the millimeter. It's just mind boggling. You know, there are Swiss watches that you think, yeah. I could park a car in the gap you've got there compared with, you know, just the way you could run the, the cooling system on the side of a, a Formula One car underneath the, the, the uh, you know, the, the bodywork. It's, right. it's, it's truly astonishing. Um, and then, of course, you can, you know, if you are fortunate enough to see behind the scenes, um, we, we kind of supply lots of people. So I get to see quite a lot of stuff. And right. you can't disclose confidences, things that right. I see that, that personally excite me. And I think, that's amazing. Right. I can't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, people, people who, you know, family right. members just think, oh, God, here he goes again. Mm-hmm. I can't talk, you know, people at work are just not, not terribly fussed right. by it. But I, it's, it's what I do and what I love and what I, I get enthusiasm from. And, but any racing car up close, the, the, the attention to detail now, that's, that's how you win is attention to detail. Right. You know, any fool, it's like the any fool can drive fast in a straight line adage. Any fool can make a fast car. Right. A winning car is a completely right. different um, proposition. You, you have to get all of the bits right. You right. have to be better than the next guys at everything. You can't just be good in one particular aspect. Right. When you're designing a car, you look at it. What's it going to do all season? Consider weather, consider different track surfaces, and you find the sweet spot where the car has to be as optimal as possible at the most amount of time. So you'd, you'd find what your corner, what, you know, an average corner that you could maximize. You were always going to get the outliers, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the Lowe's hairpin at Monte Carlo. If you designed your car to be as, 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 as unbelievably quick as possible for at that, it's going to be utterly useless everywhere else. Right. Likewise, you know, Beckett's and Maggots at Silverstone. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of an engineering test, but it's not representative of Singapore or whatever. So right. you're looking at a whole big picture in the way that, that the engineering and the thought process goes into making these things quick. And, and, and I don't think that would have been done years ago either. It was, you know, some guy in the drawing board would have come up with something and thought, hmm, that doesn't look dreadful. Um, aerodynamically, I reckon that's probably all right without much, you know, physics behind it. Mm-hmm. Take it out on a track. But that was the other thing, you know, at the risk of sounding like some in the old days person. Um, there was a lot more physical testing that went on. There were, the, you know, nowadays things are budget restricted or testing restricted and stuff. So a lot more engineering and preparation has to go in before a car even rolls off a truck. Right. I mean, you, you, you're talking about NASCAR being everybody was different in the old days. 
well mm. they're not now you know no. your your current next gen car <laughs> or whatever they're they're terming it is is essentially it's the same thing underneath they're very very similar and so you, you've got tiny nuances of engineering that you can that you can you can alter and obviously the talent of the guy peddling it so you know it's just a different world you, right. it, you know, people look back in in when in longing at you know the races in the 70s or 60s or whatever but i mean as you say they wouldn't be allowed now but it's 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 you, you time has moved on and you can't go back and, right. and recreate that so stuff like goodwood going back to that one you can see the history in a day or two of watching things go up the hill and it's incredible uh, and and it also uh, the the breadth of engineering in racing is also astonishing you kind of forget if you live in your little bubble of you know, do, you know formula cars and stuff and then someone drives one of the dakar trucks up the hill these enormous right. camel camels things that it, it's just and you know diesel smoke blowing out of it it's a suspension travel that moves six feet and it just hammers up they think that's motorsport too yeah that's that's incredible and then the next thing that comes up is possibly a formula e car or something that's that's motorsport powered by something complete it, it the, the breadth of it and when people talk about you know working in motorsport it's a bit like saying i'll meet you in new york right well that's a bit vague isn't it motorsport is is an enormous industry with so many different challenges and so many different series and so many thought processes i'm sure if you plonked adrian newey in any team he'd make it brilliant but your average engineer isn't you know it, it, they have to be focused on a particular skill set or um direction Discipline, yeah yeah and you, you just it's it's just mind-boggling to see that the differences that are coming in now yeah and things that i i, I really um admire things like garage 56 at le mans where technically it's a i mean this year it's going to be a nascar that's going to run for what does that mean hours. garage 56 it's it's a sort of an experimental um, entry that they allow every year. Oh. Um, um, Le Mans is uh, there's there's four classes I believe the prototypes and LMP2 and then a couple of GT type classes, but but one team is allowed to bring something oddball just because it's an engineering challenge. So um, they had a hydro the hydrogen car has been mooted. I think it's turned up whether it's actually raced um, or not. I can't really remember, but um, Ben Bowlby came up with the Nissan that was the sort of dragster-like thing that um, didn't really conform to um, sort of standard thinking. So it, it's bring along something unusual. And this year, it, it, um, it's I think it's Hendrix running the car. Hmm. Um, and it is a, a NASCAR that's going to run in the 24 hours of Le Mans. And that sort of thing's great. Let's, let's think a little bit unusually. You know, you, the sport can very easily stagnate because, well, in 1951, this is how we did things. Right. You know, this is tradition. And I've got no problem with tradition. In fact, right. I'm, I'm, I think tradition is, you know, things like the Indianapolis 500, you know, the, the the way formula one is 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 presented on a weekend yeah you have to maintain because otherwise history right doesn't really work does it you, right. you can't look back and compare and contrast but in having new ideas and in, 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 in inviting new technologies or new types of i mean whether they score points or not who cares it's a bit like the sprint races that formula one have come up with 
yeah, fine. I mean, it makes the whole weekend have some more um, realistic activity. Does it add stuff? I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent. It's all right. right. But yeah, you've got to keep moving on. You've got to keep trying. Otherwise, at the end of the day, it it doesn't have to exist, motorsport. It's right. it's it's, uh, it's entertainment. It's a mu- it's a marketing budget for someone, right. either some deluded billionaire who likes to spend their money on cars or a corporation's marketing budget. Right. And they want to see a return. And to get a return, you've got, you need eyeballs, either whether they're in a grandstand or whether they're watching it on TV. Right. So it's, as you say, it's got to be entertaining. It can't just be an engineering challenge for people who are, you know, interested in the weave of carbon fiber much right. as i'm sure it is interesting to learn that it'd be curious to see what the um garage 56 is i i um do, are, now is the idea that it's just supposed to be exotic or are they trying to be competitive or it's uh, it's, it's inviting for interpretation new, yeah it's new technologies really that's what they're they're trying to to get out of it <clears> so <throat> different powertrain different um materials that can be used to diff- just different designs it mm. so it, it it's it's just innovation let's 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 just have an invitational garage an entry that can be that's outside of the regular um regulation set mm-hmm. uh, just see what happens it's so yeah it's good I, I i don't think it would work for every possible motorsport discipline having something you know and today folks we have a clockwork car right oh great yes this is going to cause a major accident by turn one you know it has to obviously conform to a certain extent and have a certain performance but but if it's powered by something different great that's that's what's what's going to create innovation and there'll be someone sitting in the grandstand thinking that's good right that's that that yeah let give me my give me my my notepad i've got yeah. had an idea or something so so this is this is great that that is one for there's there's some bucket list races that um that do excite and um inspire le mans is definitely one of them mm. you know I'm, I'm sure a lot of sports car races are but it's something about you know the history there you know right. the, the 24 hoursness of it that it takes over the whole region and fans come from all over the place it's there's an energy there that's amazing for the whole weekend and then you've got the different classes of car when i when i I was standing um at the where the pit lane exit is just before the dunlop bridge um and that's the first time i'd seen the toyota hypercar a few years ago actually giving it full beans and you'd just say the laws of physics seemed not to apply to that car it would come in stop and then just fire through the corner and take off again with the with the hybrid system the four-wheel drive and stuff and you compared right. it to other things going through it that that's impressive right you know i was with a colleague I was like, did you see that like, yeah that, uh, so yeah it's great it's a bit like moto gp when you see that for real right that watching that on television doesn't do it justice there's just the speed of the things right just and the stopping ability and just going through corners and, I mean, that's what obviously all motorsport is yeah i'm right. not gonna wave right. a flag and go, but it, but watching stuff for real is it is really takes your your, your breath away and, yeah, and it's, it still does it 
So the uh, the courage of the people. Some things it takes courage for everybody, but some things I think it's human nature to think there's a certain percentage of the audience that would look at that race, say, "Well, I could do that," or "What's the big deal?" or whatever. Something about MotoGP, or as I said before, when I've seen a horse race with thirty something thoroughbreds or whatever that are at full speed and you're where you can see the muck that they're in or to see a MotoGP bike really come through at speed um, and have to combine all the elements, the cornering, the braking, the acceleration, the drifting, breaking the rear wheel free, all of these things, they were, you're on the, literally on the ragged edge and there's nothing to protect you should there be a mistake. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's like cliff diving or something like you, you, you misjudge by half a second and, um, you know, the cameras look away, they sweep you up and then they continue on with whatever the event was. It's, uh, it really, it, it brings to human beings, this, uh, you know, the thrill, as I used to say in the wide world of sports, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, it just brings that, that element of, um, danger and almost a near-death experience to you. It's pretty amazing. I I think of most motorsports, maybe maybe even more than, uh, have you ever been to a big drag race with uh, top fuel dragsters and whatever here in the States, we've got them all the time. That's pretty impressive. But MotoGP to me, to see all those bikes wide open, like really wide open is terrifying. I think they've lost their mind. They, they, they're a certain different beast. Yeah, and the fact look, look, I'll still race. You know, it's like the knight from Blackadder, isn't it? The guy that's you know, <laughs> not, um, no, no, um, Python, isn't it? Where he gets it, like, has his arm cut off. Oh, it's no, tis only a cut. Right. But you know, they, they get on a bike with broken arms and collarbones right. and legs missing and things. It's just, um, <clears throat> I broke, I broke my sternum carting, which was painful because I'm a, I'm a weak human that you know right. doesn't like pain very much you know every time you breathe it goes <laughs> right it's like oh yeah you know he's got broken leg or something and he's right how how is that humanly possible They're just I, not right i mean lance stroll at the beginning of the year where he wrote he it's the first race with broken wrists and a broken toe or something or other incredible uh, yeah just the 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 sheer um determination not to you know, fail or not to take part and that, that sort of thing. It, motorsport seems to encourage a particular warrior. I mean, maybe yeah. it's a sort of substitute for, for you know, gladiators of the past, you know, and right. war and things. You get, you, there's, there's a certain type of person that you need to be to succeed, I suspect. Yeah. Very famously in um, Navy SEALs uh, in the States, I've heard them, and I'm sure it's the same with special ops there in uh, Great Britain and other places. There's just no plan B. Like, it's not a marketing slogan. It's not a metaphor. It's this is everything that they are, and they are able to, to a degree, compartmentalize the pain or the fear or whatever in a way that 99.9% .9 of the population just can't do, whether that can be developed. There's uh, um, Andrew Huberman runs the fear and sleep lab out of Stanford. And he talks about how, um, how they study this kind of stuff and how they train a number of the seals are terrified of the ocean and sharks in particular, and they're freaking Navy seals. 
and the way that they 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 never necessarily overcome their fear but they attack it when they go through these simulations they come at their fear in a very um not in a sloppy way or you just get eaten but in a but in a very specific their brain just operates differently and some can some people can um develop that and others can take that foundation and uh tune it but it's uh I, I, let me ask you this question, though. I, I've been fascinated to ask you. So we've talked a lot about Formula One in particular, but from where you're sitting, Paul, what do you think? And some of your colleagues or mates probably will argue with you, but if you had to choose one or two technology, innovation, material, just something other than the development of the human driver in those cars what do you think has been the most consequential maybe of your career, maybe not in all of time, but in the last 20, 25 years of being in or around this, either as a fan or directly involved, if there was one or two things that's really changed the sport um, in a way that it hadn't been changed before, what would you think that is? I think, well, there's, there's a lot of potentials to that one. Technology. Is, is I mean that's a very vague term. So interpret but, how you want. But everything has moved on. It's manufacturing, speed of manufacturing, um, speed of change. Where someone's gone, oh, I've got a great idea, lads. How quickly you can manufacture, the, uh, can convert that into material you can you can bolt to a car. Um, the amount of data you can capture now, you know. The, the old adage of you know my iPhone's got more power than NASA had when they sent right. people to the moon thing. Well, yeah, that's that's makes a big change now. The the density of information that can be collected and then interpreted and turned into performance. Right. So so technology, I mean it's a very vague term. Um, but but it but it's ev everything has moved. You know, if you looked at a car 20 years ago well the, one of the most beautiful cars ever made was the mclaren mp44 from 1988 the senna prost car that mm -hmm. won 15 out of 16 races or whatever it was uh, you look at it now and it's it's an antique compared with right. you know last year's red bull right. there's, there's... in that red bull I mean, sometimes I imagine in dirt bike racing, I imagine some of the great gladiators that we've had. And if we put them on a, one of the modern bikes with not just 13 inches of suspension, but the type of suspension, the 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 type of power, four-stroke power, so much different than two-stroke, like in all these innovations, the the engineering, the real-world feedback, the, the, the gear that they wear that is so breathable and yet so much more powerful, like it just in, in a million ways but they had these hearts of warriors they had this instinctual ability to accomplish things that none of our modern racers would even attempt on tracks like that 30 years ago they'd be terrified to take a bike from 30 years ago and ride them at the speed that they were ridden they'd be like we would die yeah and i imagine a uh elaine prost and ariaton senna some of these other great names um, uh, of history in one of the, you know, Lewis Hamilton's car, some of these others, or even Schumacher brought forward 25 years. I would it be the same, or I, I, I just wonder if they would, um, 
what that would be like, or maybe their skill doesn't translate. You know, they're the way the one of the reasons that separated them was their ability to interpret what's going on on the track around them and and articulate it to their engineers who could then adjust the vehicles with without the sort of data sources that you have now that it helped facilitate that um, that adjustment. One of the things I've read, I I believe this is true is that they have 3D printing available to them. So to your point earlier about, hey, I, I want to try something. It works on this digital twin. It worked on the simulator. Let's print this thing up, attach it to the car, swap something out or repair something and run it back out on the track. And so they've got this real, almost real-time feedback loop. Um, I wonder what it would be like if, do you think there'd be significant impact if you could bring some of these people from the past into today, or is that not a fair, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, exercise? I, su I suspect that the greats of their time would still be greats in this time and vice versa. If, if Lewis sure. Hamilton found a TARDIS and turned up in the 60s, he would still well, <laughs> it would still be amazing. It'd be quite a bit of surprise, I imagine. But, <laughs> but, but you know, people like Jimmy Clark would still be a genius today, right. or Senna, or Jackie Stewart. Or, oh, Jackie Stewart, yeah. It, there's, there's the people of their, t their era, they they were of their time, obviously. Right. Thank you. Right. There's right. podcast statement of the year sorted. Well but... Um, but but there's there's going to be there's that certain element that the immense mental capacity that they have to process driving quickly probably only takes about 10 percent of their ability everything else is working on what's going on where other people are what the weather's doing how that track surface is changing how you know was that something i could hear is, right. is that an you know that's that's the thing that seems to highlight the the really really good you've got the pyramid of you know the super elite ones right at the top you a couple show up you know every few years that, that just have that extra x Thing. factor right. um I, I mean i was talking to a, a chap at mclaren um before lewis hamilton's first test and <laughs> he was uh, you know he was a mclaren um you know contracted driver from the junior series and stuff and they were saying that you know he he was he was he he showed some sort of that they weren't quite sure but it, there was a sort of oh yeah he certainly got ability and his very first test was in valencia um not the track around the harbor one but the 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 other one that you know the right. permanent circuit and they'd done some simulation of what they thought the car would do and strapped him in it and he went out and within a few laps he was virtually at what they thought the car was capable of and they they honestly thought the data was wrong they just mm. how that i mean he'd done some straight line stuff driving up and down airfields which you know let's face it doesn't take the biggest skill in the world to drive in a straight line so right. it was his first real you know adventure into turning corners and stuff and 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 it was i the whole spotting talent thing you know that obviously they saw that as as a thing right. him coming up and, and he proved he's he's shown his ability hasn't he really over the yes, last few years i mean maybe you know, we'll see jury's still out boxes. yes the lad shows promise <laughs> but, but 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 it's one of these amazing sort of 
oh, spotting people in a junior year age that you think is going to going to make it. Um, it it's it's almost an impossible task. And actually, mm. a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time, in fact, the guy that got me into this, it was his mm. his leaving the job that got me into it. He's he worked with Oscar Piastri um, and um, in Renault Formula Four or whatever, Renault Euro Series or whatever it was, the early days. And he's always been enthusiastic. Every driver he's worked with is, oh, yeah, yeah, he's really But it's very interesting. This Oscar has patently turned out to be very good. You know, you don't Mm. get given a, a seat at McLaren because you've, you know, you're all right. And um, it's, you know, I would hear from him, oh, yeah, he's got lots of talent. But that was correlated by lots of other people that watched him and thought he he absorbs everything and just creates, you know, doesn't make the same mistake twice, learns really quickly, is very adaptable, this sort of stuff. But you get other drivers that they're they're absolutely mega in the lower formulae, but you plonk them in the the top class and they, they, they never quite fulfill all of their potential but whether it's down to them or they they've actually hit a plateau on what they can do i mean it's very hard to say because humans are complicated beasts but so much of it is what goes on in the head as well as you you know you might be the fittest person in the world or, or or whatever but sport is has a unique capacity to um well you can fail at it or, right. or succeed at it. I mean, that's another obvious statement. I'm full of right. them today, aren't I? But, um, but there was um, another tale on that side of it was um, I was at Brands Hatch at a test um, with, a, with a Formula 3 team. And um, on the Friday or Saturday, I can't remember, the day before anyway, they, they'd gone out and they'd been trundling around and the, the guy was completely happy and the car hadn't been touched at all came in the following day and we were all standing around having a cup of tea and strapped in the car went out came back it's undrivable this is interesting nothing appears fundamentally missing or you know no one's touched the thing overnight and um the 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 chief mechanic i was standing with i sort of raised an eyebrow and thought huh what and he said Oh, no problem. No problem. We'll sort it out. You go out the back. Um, yeah, I know. I know how we can sort that out. So driver pops out, goes out the back, disappears, garage door shuts. And he sits down and carries on with his tea. And I'm thinking, well, this this doesn't look like the fix I was expecting. But uh, right. I said, uh, oh, are we not? Are we, you know, shouldn't we be? And he's, no, 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 don't worry about it. So anyway, driver turns up 10 minutes later. He said, "Yeah, sorted it. It was it was it was the um, bump return on the front suspension. We adjusted it by two mil. We could see it was just slightly different." Okay, so guy gets back in the car, promptly goes back to the speed he was doing the day before. Nothing had changed. It was telling the driver that mm-hmm. he was fine and it was going to be all right. And it's that mm-hmm. cycle that was. I thought that's interesting, uh, but it's it's the human element, isn't it? Right. And another thing with the data. I guess in the old days is did you go through Eau Rouge flat? Oh yes, 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 I did. Yes, it was absolutely nailed to the floor. Now, of course, you can see you know, there's a confidence lift. You right. know, the throttle trace 
doesn't lie right. so you know nothing you do now in a racing car is is a secret right so that that's another element that has changed over the years just i i, mean, I guess that's that's drivers have to be aware of it the first time i drove a car with aero it was you could feel the downforce as you went quicker which is mm -hmm. makes makes sense but you you watch young drivers convert from carts to cars to aero slicks and wings cars and they'll get told you can go through there 25 mile an hour quicker that corner whereas their brain is telling them oh no you can't you're yeah, going to you're have done. a very horrid accident because <laughs> they're going through at say 80 miles an hour and the thing's you know doing that right. and they're told you can go through there at 110 now that takes a certain type of brain now doesn't it to go all right, I believe the data, leave it with me, pop out and have another go and leave it pinned to go through there. But of course, the aero pushes the car down, gives it more grip, and it sticks. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's a definite leap that drivers have to take in their career as they're, as they're growing up, so to speak, or right. progressing in their career is probably a better way of putting it. But but using that information and converting it into how the brain interprets it and go, yes, I can go quicker. I'm not going to wind up in an ambulance if I do this is, yeah. is quite a thing. And it you takes know, us back to our MotoGP friends that can ride a bike with one arm and things. So, yeah, there's a, they're a definite warrior. I, I would have thought that this is me outside looking in. Somebody had asked me, uh, nobody did, but I'm going to volunteer it anyway. It seems to me like the two biggest innovations of the last 20 years would be data, which we've talked about this whole time, the ability to, um, to at least digitally comment on what's going on with this vehicle. How's it performing? How's it being driven? What's, um, you know, and everything, everything from it's, it's stickiness and tackiness to the ground, to tire wear, to slipping through the air, whatever, all of that. And the second is, the ability to um, have simulations where I could, I'd, I'll, I'd love to see how this develops, but I've seen people, um, let me just give you one of my stories. So I used to be involved heavily in online racing. And I, re, uh, I was an announcer for a year or two for a league that was, had these three teenage kids who went on to race uh, NASCAR, but they were uh, probably, I don't know, 15, 17, and 19 at the time. One's dad was pretty well known in NASCAR racing. And I I want to say he raced what we used to call the Bush series. So the yeah, yeah. series, yeah. And we would do this online stuff and uh, had a lot of fun, got to know them, at least indirectly, have a number of conversations with them. Anyway, he was preparing to go race at, I think it was Sears Point. We used to call it Sears Point in California. And turned a, uh, a hot lap in way faster than even his dad thought he was, he was like, how did, how did you do that? You've never been at this track and you're not really a road kid, uh, road, uh, race driver. And he said, well, I learned it on my, uh, simulation. Yeah. That kid's name is Dale Earnhardt Jr. His two buddies were Martin Truex, NASCAR champion and Denny Hamlin, almost NASCAR champion. Uh, they were development drivers or up and coming drivers in the, on the East coast. Junior, I got to meet at one of, we used to do these big LAN computer tournaments. We do online racing and we do these LAN tournaments. And he came and met us. And he was a young guy at the time. So this is uh, 23 years ago, 2000, I want to say, 99, 2000. Anyway, um, uh, 
a lot of fun, but they learn to get confidence first by practicing it on the computer. And this is 23 year old computer technology. And so I imagine today, I know that there have been, there used to be a contest. I don't know if it still goes on world's fastest driver. And that kid won a seat on a formula three team. He and his partner um, won whatever their um, distance race was, but there's by creating these digital twins, you can get online, you can get in the simulator. It is not the same as the track, but it's about as close as you can get. And they could practice learning the downforce, learning um, not just the breaking points in the left and the right and the, uh, you know, the marks around the track. Now, I know because I, I don't anymore, but for a while, I was a pretty good simulation driver. And I had the opportunity to go out and do one of these NASCAR drive for a day thing. And my wife got so mad at me because I didn't take advantage. She brought this package as a gift. I had some buddies who went and did it. And they said, let me tell you something. It is much different doing it in a computer than even with the co-driver, you know, that you're driving, but you've got the other person in there and they're telling you, step on it, step on it, more power, more power. And these are, at least in motorsport, pretty high bank turns here in Atlanta, not Dega high, but but high. And they're like, look, 150 miles an hour or whatever they were doing, 140 miles an hour was these, which is still 50 to 60 miles an hour minimum less than the the big cars go through there, uh, much less surrounded by 30 or 40 other cars. It is it. Your brain is telling you if you do this, you're going to die. You know, in yeah. you know, intellectually, I can do it in the computer. I see him doing it. My driver did it just before this lap. I know it can be done, but my reptile brain is saying we're going to die, and only a few people actually, for whatever reason, believe enough or trust enough or are fools enough to do it. But it seems to me that through these double things of simulation, being able to simulate something so that you can maybe make that small group larger that either can learn or learn how to trust and data collection, and then being able to manipulate it either in uh, materials advancement or um, being able to prosecute a uh, uh, track better. It'd be really curious to see how that developed. Look, if we race this way, what if we take an alternative way to running this race? What if in NASCAR, you see this all the time, we run slower in the beginning. We don't want to lose touch of the top 15, but we don't have to lead the race because it's a four or 500 mile race. But if we can stay within three minutes, the cumulative effect based upon historical data of cautions and other stuff, the cumulative effect of better tires, better fuel management, uh, less opportunity for risk because those top eight knuckleheads are going to be, uh, you know, racing as if their uh, their life and careers on the line. If we stay just out of this, what the models telling us is, we got an eighty two percent chance of winning this thing, as opposed to being out in front. The cumulative effect on the driver of the stress of the fuel of the whatever. I just think that marriage of those two things, we're, yeah, we're going to advance in materials. Yes, we're going to advance in all of these other physical attributes of the car. But the more sophisticated we can get the data and the more we can react to it in real time and the ability to simulate it before the race ever happens with a wide variety of weather and other effects, man, that feels like to me in almost all, all motorsport, 
those are going to be, if not the biggest, um, certainly some of the biggest uh, impacts to it um, beyond sort of the things that we see that make things lighter and quicker. I don't know. That's for whatever that's worth. That That's how I imagine that. I, I, and it's impl impl implemented everywhere. People have to have simulations. Actually seeing a, a proper F1 sim is is an <clears throat> impressive beast. Yeah. It looks... Um, sort of like this sort of um egg with big legs hanging off it because it does it simulates the g-force movement as right. well so it has to be in a huge room you think right. oh well it's just going to be some guys sitting behind a screen but right. if you want the one with the full effect to make sure that you're sick while you're doing it that's the movement that has to has to be done but it but I'm, I'm just a story on on day on you know using a computer so yeah. many engineers of my ilk air you know an age sort of thing there was a, ga a computer game that was in i guess it was the late 80s i sort of can't remember exactly oh boy Jeff, I, Jeff Hammond's with... grand prix i don't know if you came come across that it's grand a grand prix and grand game. prix legends own them both i'm not yeah. sure well but you there was yeah. so much you could do to adjust the car uh-huh and, and it wasn't just sort of you could drive it around on idiot level and you know with the yeah. stuff on the track and everything automatic but you could adjust ride heights you could adjust wing angles you could adjust gear ratios and stuff i was on a plane with someone ages ago and you know just general nonsense came up and oh yeah do you remember grand prix two? oh yeah 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 and it turns out like, virtually half motorsport grew up with this thing yep. and, and and the engineers you've got the people who treated it as a game but right. so many of the engineers it, it was their grounding in going well if i adjust that that makes it quicker oh, this is, yeah. and that, that's how they got into it and you yeah. think that guy has got a lot to answer for yeah you know as a as just a computer game and of course they have you know more sophisticated and stuff and even stuff like forza now you know you can adjust things but but grand prix was very um you could simulate so papyrus made um the guys at papyrus out of boston made um nascar racing two and three which inspired um grand prix and later grand prix legends uh this was this was my era my man i would do the <laughs> we would set up the um online stuff that this is pre-broadband and then the, yeah. when broadband came out we'd have these land tournaments and we would ex have exhibitions of Grand Prix and Grand Prix Legends, which was the old 60s cars. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, so we got to where we could race 40 human beings in a room. And we had a three divisions, um, NASCAR racers, like all kinds of people would come to these events around the country. But um, obviously, you've heard of the Boston Red Sox baseball team out of uh, Massachusetts. Well, John Henry, their owner, so loved the these um sports cars so he liked the little vets and miatas and you know the little yeah. sport car stuff papyrus had been sold to a french company it escapes me now they own the Thrustmaster, little steering wheels and this other stuff anyway he so loved it that he also from the boston area he went and bought the rights back to this game and he is who developed iRacing. So a bunch of my friends in that early era are now over at iRacing that own NASCAR teams and all this big online racing, not just NASCAR, but um, sport car and other stuff. But one of the cool things about those early Sims, and that's what they were, they were not arcade games, they were Sims, yeah. was you would pull into the pit, you'd start off with a pit set or a racing setup, you'd come screaming into the pit, and you could just to your point, in fact, Grand Prix, you could adjust even more. And they were already ridiculously hard 
cars uh, to yeah. drive. But they, you could adjust everything from tire pressure to, uh, you know, whatever you could do in the pit in a regular pit, you would do. And you see these guys on their keyboard, kind of flipping and clicking and clacking, and then off they'd go. And it was we had epic, epic uh, races. And these guys would tune those cars and run all these laps. And it just blew people's mind that people get so get into it. And before that, um, how I really got into computer gaming, besides the first person shooters, there's a game called World Circuit. Um, in fact, in my house today, my kids just found it. It's still got the three and a half inch floppy disks. This is probably circa okay. 92, 93. World Circuit and World Circuit 2. And they were just, um, anyway, I but that gives you that uh, that that emotional experience. And I remember talking to Dale Jr. He had raced, um, where they were racing a 500-mile race, an online simulated 500-mile race at California. He was racing from his um, bus. He was at the NASCAR track. He was had his setup, his little Logitech yeah. Force feedback wheel. <laughs> and he... Um, he outsmarted everybody through pit strategy. And so everybody's pitting with five to go and he's two thirds of a lap behind them, but he had managed his race so much better. And he came out and he won the race. And I'm telling you, Paul, I thought he was going to burst into tears. And it's a very, I have a lot of affection for this. I still have a, his league's t-shirt or in around my house somewhere. He was so excited because he beat the best. These weren't his buddies. He was in a league with some of the best racers, um, online racers in the country. And he said, look, is it the same as NASCAR? No, but the emotion of winning against people really, really good. And I just spent three and a half, four hours of my time and adjusting in the pits and playing out a strategy and surviving the accidents. It's surreal. And I just remember that emotion and that experience, not just of him, but of thousands of racers over the years. And when you marry that with... Um, the ability of data, how did it work in the sim? How does it work in real life? How do I train my drivers so that everything's not foreign to them? Oh, there's the bush. I see on the simulation. Now I'm on the track and my mind is picking up markers that normally I would have had to spend hours and you know hundreds and hundreds of laps to learn the the sequence of events to get around this thing and it so accelerates my um, or gives me the opportunity to accelerate my performance but then you have the lewis hamiltons of the world that don't need a, a simulator they go out there and the computer which or their brain which i would argue is the most powerful computer on earth adopts it but i think those things that ability to simulate most anything and then bring it to the track along with data it just blows my mind where we could go with this in motorsport. Well, you have the driver in loop scenario now. So you, yeah. what the data you collect on the Friday, some poor soul is driving a sim all night on the Friday night. So the setup can be optimized for Saturday morning. So it's just the breadth of engineering you can throw at the problem because yeah. with the best will in the world, it's very unlikely you roll out on a Friday and the thing is perfect and everyone just goes, all right, time for right, lunch. That's then. A, yeah. That's so that's always the bumper setting. Yeah. But you're right. Some drivers take to it and some don't. Um, when I was in Italy, the, um, you know, one of the engineers I was talking to said, Kimi Raikkonen hated the simulator. Really? It made, it made him physically awesome. sick yeah yeah it, it just yeah. just it, the, the brain was saying 
I'm not going around a corner at 200 miles an hour, but the, you know, the input right. for, to was, so it, some people can operate with them and other, other drivers, it's their environment, like the, 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 you know, the, the test drivers or the SIM drivers in, in Formula One, obviously you, you can't really be in, you know, um, ill on a Friday night, if you've got four or five hours of different setups to, to try out for, so that the, the, you know, the, the guys come into the track on Saturday morning and set the car up according to what you found. Right. Yeah, you've got to be, that's got to be something that you're good at and, and you know, capable of, of withstanding. But the, the force feedback ones, I've had a go in a couple of them, and they are amazing. You do honestly, you know, you, you, you get the loaded up wheel, but because these things shift laterally and, you know, right. vertically and stuff, your brain is like, yes, I am, I am doing this. I am finding myself upside down in the hedge because I have no ability, but it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. The technology that, and that's, and that's, yeah, a recent innovation, computing power and right. the graphics, you know, even just a regular computer game off an Xbox or something are incredible yeah. now. So these things patently have a few more dollars spent on them. So, yeah. Yeah, every bump, every tarmac change, every one of the actually one of the times simulation was very useful. Well, it's always useful. I'm not saying one of the times, but um, when Formula E started, um, it's a completely different way. It, it's it's a very different way of going racing because you have a, a finite amount of energy, and the idea is you burn it as optimist as optimally as possible. Right. So by the time you you finish the race, technically you've used up all of that energy right so you i mean there's many ways of going about it you go out and you drive like a complete maniac for the first two-thirds of the race but you won't be able to finish the race on that um, scenario or do you shadow what other people are doing and try and be as as, as optimal as possible so you can mug them late on um so the only way you can really do this is by um, lifting and coasting and 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 optimizing the way you drive, mm. and you can simulate that, and that's what people did to start with. And it was there were people coming out of petrol cars that were used to being, you know, fairly digitally. You know, you were either maximum throttle or maximum brake, but right. you were find they were finding that it was a completely different driving skill that they had to develop to um, to optimize their energy use. Um, and lifting and coasting just didn't come naturally to a lot of people with, you know, I'm going slower. Yeah, but you're looking at the, you're almost looking at the race in reverse, you look at the finish, and then you sort of work your way backwards to the most optimal way of running it. Inevitably, motorsport being motorsport, you can't legislate for someone driving into you or, you know, right. a tire going down or having some sort of <laughs> failure. But, but all of these things, you kind of get to the track and you, you think, right, we've got it sorted. And then you look at the opposition and their setup is completely different. You think, oh, are we what geniuses? We or, right. or yeah, or have we goofed? And one right. of the one of the grid missions is you walk up and down the grid and you're looking at everybody else. And with Formula E, you could see wing angles because you know it's fairly right. obvious the cars are sort of spec right. in, on that on that level because what they're aiming at is efficiency of powertrain rather than making it an aero formula so people have pretty much got the same 
toolbox to play with as far as aerodynamics and you can have you know all the wing angles you like really but right. patently you don't want to do something really daft but you just walk you up and down like uh, they're, they're number four and number four number three and number three number one right okay and then you sort of go back and go right the common consensus is we're all right here right but have you seen what they're doing right and there's sort of much scratching of heads of you know what's going on here so there's, there's every aspect of a race weekend you know right down until the checkered flag comes out and the car's loaded or what's left of the car's loaded back in the truck again it's it's a continual input and output experience everybody's got something that can they can learn and add or or take away or whatever and of course you've got the human bit that comes out of the car swearing and shouting you know they'll have learned something that you didn't anticipate as well right and it's 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 very it, it's 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 a continual and the best ones are well, what can i learn from this what 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 did i miss you know right. drivers some some drivers kind of think they know more than they possibly do and right. others are a what? continual sponge that are like what's right. going on there am i getting the most out of that what's the optimum you know um, um speed i can get out of that right. corner you know this sort of thing so it's fascinating uh, it's and most drivers i've i've encountered have been you know very nice people and right. very amenable and 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 fun to be with but the the top echelon ones that that sort of continual must have more data is is going on all the time they they i guess that's the way, just the way they're wired up but there is always something that you can you can you can bring in even when you're having dinner after a race there's a sort of did you see it right you you never shut down do you this, right. this is interesting i wonder if um like you, i would read this in a sci-fi book i'm sure where you have the model you take a lewis hamilton you take a senna you take you know whoever choose, choose your era and your um hero of that era and if you could go put the skull cap on them and run them through i don't know a ten thousand diagnostic test or the simulator or whatever and it's recording 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 with the idea that can you build a model of what the synapses of a um successful driver looks like at least a raw based model and then we start looking to test for people like that, it's, you know, in the, in the terrible stories, they have like the comic book, Hey, if you can solve this puzzle, complete the puzzle <laughs> and call this number. And they either come and recruit you to their secret mission or they kill you, you know, one of the two things and those things, but if you could, Gosh. yeah. So if you could, if you could come in and you put the helmet on as a 14 year old or a 10 year old or whatever it is, and they, or they, they, and you go through the simulation, they're like, Ooh, look, this thing's modeling out like some of these other people, we should recruit them for, um, you know, for carding or for something else. I, I I'm wonder sure. if there's that, that couldn't be in our history or our I'm future. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure you're right there. I, I imagine that the fastest driver in the world probably drives a taxi in Paris, but we'll never know other than the fact he thinks he's the fastest driver right. in the world, but it's, there's an awful lot of luck to get the, the pyramid bit. There's a, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that start karting, right. but either by process of not having the ability or not having the money, they're not right. going to progress to ever find that out. So True. it, yeah, I, 
But if you had that simulator, you know, you're like, you. See, I've read this in a million other things where they're looking for the kid who can pull the sword out of the stone, right? And so if you've got the technology, you've got the bookmobile that comes to the, you know, they pull the truck yeah. or the lorry or whatever into town and, hey, come race your, you know, Formula One or the king or f fill in the blank, whoever's looking for. And all the citizens get to come and try to put their foot in the glass slipper and just try it. And for 99% of them, it's just a lark in an afternoon. But for 1%, they kind of get flagged into potential. And then that, you know, moves on to the next thing. I, But you still have me tripped up at this. I, I, you know, Formula One or Formula E, when you were describing that, that they don't, they potentially don't have the, enough energy in that car to run the whole race as aggressively as they would. Now, on the one hand, I understand that concept because in most racing, if you run your machine to its ragged edge, every lap, you're going to burn up the tires. You're going to break the suspension. Like there's, it's not going to materially make it, but usually you have enough fuel unless there's some really unusual circumstances. Um, you, you know, you've got pit stops and you can refuel and you got these other things. Um, when you're describing Formula E, if they couldn't refuel either by swapping out a battery or doing some kind of a fast charge, it almost feels like then I'm watching a horse race where some part of it, everybody just pulls back and they're just kind of cantering. They're not racing. They're just sort of cantering along. Yeah, it's pretty quick, but it's really not a big deal. Almost like one of those long-term, uh, long-term, <laughs> long-distance races in the Olympics where the first 80% of the race, they're just sort of in a pack doing this and nobody's really sprinting out. And then the last 10% of the race is this flurry of elbows and sprinting and whatever. And that doesn't feel very formula one-ish. What am I missing? It's a different thing. I mean, what it was designed for was um, to get people um, to optimize the powertrain. So the very first electric race series you are never going to get a, um, a duplicate of Formula One. You can't have something that does 200 miles distance at 200 miles an hour. You know, right. the energy density simply doesn't exist. So you've got to start somewhere. So the whole idea behind it was essentially a spec car with a spec battery. So you've got an, an, a known amount of energy. Um, and the first year, they had a, a spec um, motor and inverter to go with it mm. so you but but the the goal was over the next few years they'd free up different bits of the powertrain so other companies could get involved and could optimize it and learn from it because mm. motorsport brings you disc brakes it brings you carbon fiber it brings you carbon ceramic brakes you know stuff right. that appears on high-end road cars now was developed for performance reasons so the idea was let's optimize this electric motor make it smaller and lighter combine it with the inverter let's 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 let motorsport do what it's good at and optimize stuff so and they didn't want to make it an aero formula because, again, you've got then a massive amount of extra um, resource that goes to optimizing all of that. So you've got your spec body and you just muck about with the, I say muck about, you right. optimize the, the the powertrain to to make it go quicker. And over the next few seasons, that's exactly what happened. You had some teams with two motors, a single motor, a big motor, separate inverter, separate electric motors. And, just, and these things always 
you know the 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 most optimal solution is what everybody converges on in the end Mm -hmm. but um energy density is still an issue whether you're driving you know a kia ev6 you know as a road car you can't expect it to perform exactly the same way as an e-class mercedes you know it it, they've just got they're different and that that was the whole thing with with formula e which made it very interesting you know just it was just a different thing that hasn't hadn't been tried before and the other thing with it of course was because it was electric racing they were running it in city centers because of its low noise and so it was it was just another how do we go motor racing in a different way and i know that it's not as visceral as you know a nascar cup car coming past you which you feel your insides being moved around (laughs) right sort of thing and then you can't hear anything for three days because you're an idiot and forgot earplugs but it actually in an environment to work in you can you can talk to the guy next to you without a headset on it was actually quite pleasant and when you see the things up close TV doesn't really do them justice, but electric cars, I, I mean, I'm sure you've sat at traffic lights next to someone yeah. in a Tesla who turned it into lunatic mode and decided to, you know, get to the horizon as quickly as possible. Electric cars really do take off. Oh, yeah. And a, and a Formula E car, actually, when you're standing, you know, at a, at a corner, watching the thing, you know, there's, the, there's no sort of delay, is there? You, right. you press the pedal and energy starts turning wheels and these things fire and i i found it really impressive have you ever got to do the electric carding electric car carding have you done that yet so here we have it yeah we've got it over here too we have andretti carding and my i'm six foot three right at 300 pounds and my buddy was like you need to come do this with me i'm like i don't fit into carts i'm not interested and if i could i will just get run over Paul, I was the third fastest on the track that night in our group. Um, a group of about 50 people went out different times. There was so much power in that cart. There was way more power. It could care less what I weighed. It raced me around that track. It was, uh, it was all about handling and driving. And I could not believe how much fun. And it didn't shatter my ears as an indoor karting center. It was absolutely, I don't know what it would be like as a spectator, because I do like the smell and the sound and the whatever. But in terms of being in the car, I could not remember the last time that was, it was, I had that exhilarating an experience with my friends karting or dirt biking or anything. It was unbelievably fun. I've driven a 250cc gearbox cart. That was the fastest thing on earth I have ever driven, regardless, you know, where it comes from or whatever. Right. And it was, it, it was terrifying because you were changing gear the whole time. So it's right. like, beep, 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 and I'm trying not to bin it and right. stuff because you're basically having to drive it one-handed. And this thing, I don't know what it's naught to 60 time was, but, you know, fractions of a second, because it didn't weigh anything. Right. It, it had about a billion horsepower or something, but it was just... <laughs> utterly terrifying you drive it for it was a friend of mine's and it, it was basically he'd, he'd built it and it, would, it was just sort of going through the setup phase right um so it wasn't optimized and it, it was sort of running on a bit rather than you know when you lift giving you right. full braking but I, I i and i'd done a lot of karting at that point and i, I came out of it and i just I was looking at the thing thinking 
what the hell? Um, right. And um, and he said, oh, you should get one. We could race. I'm thinking, no, nah, I, I kind of know my limits now. Yeah. And as much fun as it is to, you know, go around right. a test track and, and you know, give it some beans. Imagine right. being with 10 other maniacs do yeah. also driving something that yeah. would take you to the moon and back if you if you accidentally really gave it full power. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite fancy a going an electric, but yeah. but I would be amazed if it was it was more of a terrifying experience than a 250 gearbox car. Yeah. Well, these are tuned down. Obviously they're not what you described, but it was so much fun. Um, I, I can't wait to do it again. We were talking earlier about data. How, how do you, I'm curious, how do not just the driver in the cockpit, but how do the teams you, you talked about this, um, Anna, basically, uh, uh, this beautiful kind of chaotic background of a race is going on. You have a driver and the team talking, you have the engineers talking amongst themselves. You could, you, you even alluded to, man, it's possible to have like a global conversation going on, right? Is it, if, if, yep. if some data point starts telling something that's unexpected engineers on the background could be calling other engineers somewhere in the globe, not just in the paddock about, Hey, what, what do we, is this expected? How do we adjust or whatever? Does it ever get too much in the moment? I mean, when we have time to sort of, and computers to help us to sort through, but you know, what's the impact of all of that information swirling around? Ultimately, you've got the driver and their, their pit boss who are making the, or crew chief, however, however it works um, in Formula One. I know in NASCAR, it's, you have a a leader of the operations group yeah. on race day, and then you have the driver and ultimately, and, and sometimes a spotter, but really that driver and the um, crew chief are making decisions to prosecute this race uh, so that we have a winning result or the best result we can. Does it ever, does the data ever get overwhelming? I'm sure it does. There's um, the, the the teams have something called mission control back at their factories. So they have on race day, they'll have 30, 40 people in a room, big screen on, on the wall, sort of like a NASA yeah. control room and screens in front of them. It's like you're following, you know, Ferrari, if, if right. they have to be a Mercedes employee. So right. they are following one of the Ferrari cars. That's their job to f work out what they're doing and keep an eye on that and listen to the radio comms and all that sort of thing. Right. You're looking at brake wear, brake temp. You're, you're looking at um, tire deg. So they've got engineers that are, you know, specialize. And you see it in, you know, when you watch racing, you think that's a very strange decision to pit and put wet tires on you know right. you, you're and you're uh, this is like normal people watching on the regular right. worldwide feed thinking right. this doesn't make sense right but the as you say the amount of data and the amount of chatter and the amount of input you have to have a rigid structure at a at a at a, at a, at a sort of co convergence of where this information goes because you can't have everyone going hey lewis lewis you should right. be doing this look at this you know it has to all come through certain channels and then you have a guy at the track that takes it and as the strategist who makes the final call now they are humans and they're only taking in information and especially things with weather changes you know nothing really 
beats having a guy stood at the other side of the track with his hand out going it is raining here right. you know weather radar is only so um accurate Useful and accurate yeah, yeah. so um, yeah i mean it does get overwhelming you 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 get to see daft calls uh, you know on tv and you think well what are they doing right but it is a it is a situation where there's too much data going in and the human filter element isn't knocking out the the irrelevances and they're they're jumping on the wrong thread but that's that's humans for you you know they they're never going to i may i mean i wonder how you know give it a couple of years and you'll have an ai thing that's going what i was about to ask that you, looks yeah. all of this uh, at the moment it's human people um but you know maybe just a dell laptop in a corner spouting out the, the correct strategy in five years time big cost saving there but but yeah. i don't know it the but there's so many factors that come in. It's going to take quite an intelligent piece of machinery to to look at that. And you know, there's there's always history. One of the things that happens in racing. I've, I was at um, Pro Drive, which is mm -hmm. um, they they do rally cars and um, GT cars and things like this. This was ages ago when um, they would they it would they were top of the tree when it came to rallying mm -hmm. and um, we were sitting there and um, one of the aged engineers there was was sort of you know we were chatting and he sort of rolls his eyes he says yeah these these kids come from university full of ideas but you know experience tells us that not all the ideas are good ideas no all right. ideas are worth considering right. but some ideas have been thought of in the past and one of the things they were talking about was putting the windscreen washer bottle in the back of the car to um to optimize weight distribution now everything is down to the last gram because right. when people start looking at motorsport they think oh really but right. every gram every where the weight is in the car everything is is considered so you optimize right. absolutely everything so yeah to optimize weight distribution stick the water bottle in uh, the windscreen wash back in the back now what history and experience tells you here is as soon as you spin the car around and the tail comes out g-force fires water down and it sprays on the screen now the theoretics idea behind it is great but the practical idea behind it isn't so you know you're going to get humans being needed just to go yeah we did that 20 years ago it didn't right. work then right i suspect it's not going to work anytime right. soon so yeah there's human learning yeah. will take a take a fair bit of uh of technology to overtake i suspect right well, we see the reason I ask is you see AI in so many. It's not so much that it's um, in many ways now that it's taking over for people, but it's helping to inform at least the best use of it. Where it's, <clears throat> I have 10,000 sensors collecting data and I need to consolidate it down into a um, um, <clears throat> actionable, real time uh decision and so if i had 20 engineers sitting there kind of monitoring all their a particular area you know one on each tire not just brakes but one on each tire for brakes and all these other things and they're looking at trends and they can instantaneously look at historical data at this track at other tracks with this material blah 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 blah, blah. and what happens then is um i'm able then to feed this up 
and the the machine says not to the crew chief but to the the tire manager or whatever hey look here's i'm seeing temps on these beads i'm seeing these things here's what's happening and they have some experience through the simulators and through other things so it's not so much replacing people as it is augmenting them and it helps to say you know, look you got an 80 percent probability here you got a 30 percent probability of this happening it just whether it's in the near term in the next two years or it's in the um in the next 10 years whatever it is i it just seems like i in my job i have chat gpt help me um i'll take a an hour and a half conversation use an ai tool to turn that into text from words and then i have another tool i had the conversation so i know what it's about but man it would be great if you could boil that down into four or five bullet points for me and the AI tool doesn't get it perfectly, but it'll get to be about 70% of the way there. And then I can wrap it up. Whereas before it took me two or three hours to kind of sort through that. And I got to believe it's going to be impacting so many industries, not chat GPT, that's, but generative AI, yeah. these kinds of things where, or, or even the, you know, one of these engineers using, using a natural language model can, can say to the computer, like we used to see in Star Trek, Hey, What's the historical data on blah, 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 blah. And how are we running compared to that? Like just talk into it, not type it in yep. just as if you're talking to a person and it just spits out data. It doesn't tell you what action to take, but just says, well, this is, this is how we're running comparative to that. And, um, and then they can decide to do something. It, it would be curious to see if it's not being used now in that world, how it will be evolved. Cause I guarantee you, people are trying to figure out how do we implement these things to enhance our edge. I'm, I'm sure you're right. They, they certainly run all sorts of simulations prior to getting to a track. Right. Um, but, but it's one of those, it's still one of those things, you know, the best plans always fall apart with the first contact with the enemy or whatever yeah, the, right. the phrase is. Everybody has a plan so, until they get punched in the face. Yeah, indeed, yes. Right. So, um, yeah, and much punching of facing goes on, you know, as soon as you <laughs> appear, because you only have to look at what happened to... Um, Alpine at the weekend, yeah. you know, um, what, um, oh yeah, a ghastly caught fire, you know, obviously some, some hose came loose, so the car caught fire, mm. then they rebuilt the car and uh, went out and he crashed it, Ocon's car I don't think did more than a half a dozen laps, so they, and that, and that, they had one free practice because it was a sprint weekend. Right. Yeah, and they came with high optimism that they had some updates that made the car really good. Now, to be fair to them, when the car did run, it looked very good and it was, you know, on the pace and stuff. But, you know, with all the best will in the world, chat GPT and its and his mates aren't going right. to simulate the car catching fire three laps right. in, are they? So right. your weekend can rapidly disappear off down the rabbit hole of doom and yeah. you'll find yourself having to sort of backpedal and, and go back on it. But yeah, they do. Everyone runs simulations to the best of their ability yeah. and expect, you know, the, the history has given a whole raft of data of, you know yeah. how things should go but yeah. you're never going to um simulate everything which yeah. and that's why let's face it that's why we like live sport for sure you know there's a great deal on television now that you know i'd rather not get involved with and i have no interest in at all but sport you don't know what's going right. to happen and that's yeah. whether it's football or motorsport or whatever you you, you there's still that element of oh what's going to happen that yeah. that that makes it attractive yeah. Who, who knew that, um, 
uh, England was going to win the uh, rugby championship. This uh, I have friends from Manchester and they uh, screaming and yelling. I think it was England who won. Um, what is it? The, the, the women. rugby it was the yeah. women. Well, yeah. what, whatever group it was, I just remember them losing their mind. Was it the rugby six or something? I can't remember. They, yeah. uh, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. How how much do drivers, if I'm recruiting a driver, do I want them to have, um, is it important to me at all that they are able to have some relationship with this data or is it just uh literally the time on our tradition of you're able to get in a car, you receive the mechanic, you, you, you are able to interpret the mechanical experience that's happening in real time, articulate it to your team. They may validate it with data or, or whatever they, they do. And I expect you to be able to work um, together uh, for success with your crew chief while we're, we're live. Does any of this technology impact how I recruit for a driver or who I want for a driver, or is it really just this time honored tradition of you let the coach be the coach, you uh, operate these mechanisms by which you manipulate this car around the track. I think you find the, the primary skill has to be the skill of pedaling the car. But right. as, a, as a sort of, I've mentioned earlier, all drivers are really intelligent. You know, yeah. you might think, yeah, I don't know about that, but they are, they have they've got be. huge yeah. mental capacity. Yeah. And the, I have yet to meet a driver. If the data is available, they will want to study it. Now, how they interpret it is, you know, down to them because it, that's not their primary skill set. But right. then when they look at the wiggly lines and they see, you know, they can go through a corner two kilometers an hour quicker if they break fractionally later or whatever it is now even simple data traces are hugely enlightening and and the thing that the you know the good ones they say i uh on lap 37 i i was you know two inches off the apex and they're telling you this the following week and you think I can't remember what I had for breakfast. How, <laughs> how can you come, can you bring that back? And then you it's look amazing. back with the engineer and they're right. It's yeah. um, and, uh, so they are special, some yeah. more special than others, but they have incredible recall of what the car's doing <laughs> over a particular part of a lap, you know, Oh, I've got, you know, terrible understeer going in and then snap oversteer going out on lap 14. Re- what about the rest oh the rest was fine but but the good ones want to know why you know right. at the end of the day it's physics you know right. there's 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 usually cause and effect if the thing is and they all believe that they're the greatest driver in the world because that's sportsman for you right. but you know what can you optimize better and it's down to tiny fractions of detail because even you look at a race now and whatever series you know, from the front to the back of the grid, you know, the, that qualifying lap time is probably not that far off. You know, you could be maybe the, the slowest car is a second and a half off over a three and a half mile lap. Right. That's not miles off, is it? Right. You know, so, to, but to, to, to get that last few percentage points, that's where the, all the engineering, all the data, all the talent, all the luck comes in just to, to move you into the, the right position. People come, you know, they've spent, you know, hours and you know, months 
and they brought two tenths of a second to to the to the car. You think really is that worth it? But you know it's all cumulative, and right. Red Bull didn't get to the front of the grid, you know, by luck. Right. You know, it's it's a lot of talent, a lot of engineering, a lot of experience, a lot of optimization of tiny, tiny details, and you produce the whole thing. People say, "Oh, we've brought a new front wing." Yeah, but the front wing that that affects the whole car. It's right. you know, it's it's conditioning the air as it goes through past the car, over the wing, under it, round the tires, through the big sort of gaping mouths to feed the floor. It it it's it all affects it. You you can't just change one article, you know, one item on the car and it not having an effect somewhere else. Right. So understanding the big picture is important for the driver. They, they you know they they can't just go new wing great. They they they, <laughs> they need to understand what it's going to do. I'm sure in the simulation they'd have had a go of it, but. Right. You know the reality again, as we've mentioned. You know what happens on paper doesn't necessarily translate to what happens right. on tarmac. Right. So yeah, it can get close. It doesn't. It doesn't. But you're you're. It reminds me so much of. Uh, um, I know I'm going to botch it, but once upon a time, I heard a conversation with Michael Phelps, the famous American uh, Olympic swimmer, and his coach. Very similar, and they, the. the what the coach basically, what the two of them became convinced of, as I remember uh, the conversation was, we're not trying to win by a foot or like we have no imagination of how much to win by. If we win by a butterfly wing, we win. And so if we can make nuanced tweaks, whether it's the entry into the water, the stroke, the breathing, whatever, the kick, all the various elements they talked about, our goal is one, not to disrupt what's working right of the whole, and two, to have incremental improvement. And I don't have to be 10% better than my competitor. If I can just be one half of 1%, I touch the bar first, I get the gold medal, and nobody remembers who got second. And yeah. I thought that was such a fascinating, um, somebody, uh, or I asked somebody, Hey, who did Michael Phelps beat for his Olympic medal? And they were like, "Well, I think they." I said, "Everybody. He beat. He beat everybody." And athletes that or teams that have that in mind, they beat everybody. I know we've been talking for a while, but if you got a few minutes, I, I'm really curious about this. So, I've never been to a Formula One race. I've been to a bunch of races. Uh, Indy is probably the biggest spectacle of motorsport I've ever been to. That was a pretty impressive spectacle, and and it is, and actually. I, I'm obviously patently not an American, but right. standing on the grid at the 2015 Indianapolis 500 with you know the million people there, right. and the, you know, all, all the, the grid and the, the fly past and the national right. anthem and stuff, that was one of the most unbelievable emotional experiences I've ever had in all of motorsport. So, you know, so what, it, it, it is incredible. And they've got a hundred years of practice at that. But I say that though with. Drive to Survive and other shows. Um, I loved Ford versus Ferrari. I, yeah. you know, all these, uh, um, Steve McQueen and, uh, you know, his uh, movies in the 60s. And then later, um, uh, I can't believe I'm escape. his name escapes me um, from Rockford Files. But anyway, I think he, Grand Prix uh, was the name. Of, um, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll yeah. remember it. Um, <laughs> Jim Rockford will do. I yeah, mean, Jim Rockford is exactly from Rockford Files. James, I can't James Garner. James Gardner, thank you, yeah. good Lord, Maverick. But anyway, um, the the greatest spectacle in terms of a sport 
I've ever seen is Formula One, at least from the camera view of the teams, the colors, the the yeah. the the paddock area, that in every way, beautiful people, men, women, it, the way that countries roll out, like it's a huge thing. And it reminds me of, um, I heard an actor say this once, made me laugh. Actors always dream about being rock stars. Even if you're the greatest, you're Tom Cruise. Like if you could be, you know, the lead singer for Zeppelin, or you could be the lead singer for, I don't know that anybody wants to be Simone Le Bon of Duran Duran, who I'm going to go see here in a few weeks. So there's that. They were playing in London last night and a friend of mine went. But, yeah, we're going uh, to see them. And the next night we're yeah. going to see Sticks, a great American rock band. So, you know, Excellent. Um, my point is just that um, uh, th there's something about on the world stage. I mean, it would be interesting if even Beckham's, if you could say, hey, who would you, would you rather 10 years as uh, Lewis Hamilton or 10 years as David Beckham? Because it's not about the money, like, would you like want to be the one of the heroes of football, the most popular a ball sport on earth, or a hero and a legend for twelve or fifteen years of Formula One? I, I don't know how they would answer that, but it's just amazing spectacle. So what, what it leads to my question is, I don't know how you can be successful without. You got to have certain ego. You've got to have a certain um, swagger. What is it like without naming any names? Is it normal that that engineering and driver and mechanical and marketing crew um, are, are integrated and work well together, or are they very sort of compartmentalized and it's it's uncommon for the 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 driver or maybe some of the elites in the team to kind of mingle with the regular people. What is that like away from the cameras, just sort of in your experience, just every day, the dynamics of a team. And I recognize there are outliers, but is it pretty collaborative or is it really pretty compartmentalized? I, I mean, the best ones, the ones that are on a, on a wave are the collaborative ones. And you, the superstars and the leaders and stuff acknowledging the less superstar-y people right. and there there's the leaders of our leaders mm -hmm. one of the, the there are charismatic people that people would walk through walls for and right. that ga galvanizes the others and nobody is too big right. um dave richards when he ran pro drive and um bar honda um, I was sitting in reception one day and he came in because he could park out the front and he didn't have to park where visitors did out <laughs> way away. And he right. walked over and he says, are you being looked after? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, David. Right. You know, you, you, that, that guy's in charge of the entire team. And he comes right. over and just checks some idiot sitting in reception just to make sure that they're, they're being sorted right. and someone's coming to meet them and things like that. And you get you get characters. Um, Ducati, when I there there was a huge mural on the wall of Carl Fogarty um one of their superstar um superbike riders of the mm. of the 90s people yeah it, he's a leader people would do anything the same mm. as Michael Schumacher mm. like him or whatever mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. anyone who's worked with the guy said you know if he said we're lads we're going to run across broken glass today in bare feet they they 
he, he created that team spirit and mm. that will to win and that determination. It's a skill as a driver to build the team around you to optimize your position so it makes your life easier and if you want to change people are like yeah no problem we'll have that sort right yeah there are characters that are that appear that that create that that do that that are the leaders that the human element that that makes the sport successful so yeah i uh, from from my my experience anyway the the teams that are all pointing in the same direction are the the ones that win but it's one of these cyclical things isn't it you think mercedes they're never ever going to stop winning are they right ferrari in the early 2000s that's right you know the, the schumacher era right. you think this is going to go on for mclaren's but yeah yeah, yeah, just, yeah. exactly it, it it comes and goes you would never have believed that we, you know williams last championship was 1997 they were the steamroller of their era. The, the um, Villeneuve car right. was the last championship winning car. And they, they, even in the early 2000s, when they had BMW power and Montoya, you thought, well, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? Right. So you can't take anything for granted and everything has to be pointing in the right direction. You know, as you said, no one remembers who finished second unless you're yeah. a real super fan and go, well, of course it was Barrichello, wasn't it? But, or whatever. Unless you're Barrichello. His oh, mom yeah. remembers, but nobody I'm, else. I'm, yeah. I'm fairly sure. But whatever, it's it it is one of those things where you, you know, it it yeah. all has to work, yeah. and it's in. It's like all sports. I I assume if you if you if you're if you're hanging around the team when they're doing really well and they're winning every other weekend, it's a good vibe. Yeah, you know, everybody's properly fully lit and fully committed and enjoying themselves. When you're taking a battering, again, whether it's motorsport or football or rugby or golf or whatever, and you just can't get out of that, it's tough. And it's that's another thing where leaders and people who motivate, they can they can stand in front of a group of people who are thinking, why am I here? What am I doing? And, right. and you know, half an hour later, they're all going, woohoo! And even restrained British people are going, woohoo! And, you know, and all, all sort of all firing in the same direction and all vibe back up again to to make it happen yeah and motorsport's odd it's not i mean it is very odd for lots of reasons but it's not a job people do as a job they do it because they want to be in it yeah. and that's very different from my colleagues who visit you know people who make aircraft and military vehicles or road cars or whatever there's a lot of people who turn up to those factories and they go home at five and it right. pays them a living and they're perfectly content. Right. But I've yet to meet anybody when I go into a team who goes, <sighs> dinner, right. right? you know, if it needs doing, they will do it till whatever time it takes. Right. That's a, that's a kind of gang mentality that, it, that that appears in a team it's 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 you against the world i mean in nowadays in formula right. one it's you and 800 of your closest mates against the world right. admittedly but it's still that gang gang mentality that you know you're fighting for your tribe to make it better right. and that that whole feeling of when it when it starts to work you know that the people to look at each other and go yeah right we, we, we're winning now we've got it going here come right. on and it's 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 a different thing and 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 that's what's fun you bring a new product or a new idea to a racing team and it's devoured and people leap on it and you know well sometimes they do sometimes they look at you and sure. think, don't worry right. we're not going to bother with that but but you you still get 
instant feedback if you if you produced the same thing and it was going to a big airplane manufacturer it right. might not even get on a thing for 10 years right. especially a military program you know some of them take yonks before they even uh, turn into a something whereas motorsport is almost instant even in this day and age of cost caps and lack of testing and things in the old cigarette days where they had a test team and unlimited amounts of cash you know plonk something new it would be on a car on the monday being hurtled around and people trying things out with it that was fun you know but it just doesn't happen now but there's still okay you've developed something different how could how can we use it you know the vibe to make it work and understand it and often we think you're going to be using it on that and they use it on something completely different and and they've already thought of a different application and a different way of doing it that's motorsport that's why people do it and that's that's why people kind of don't go away from it. I mean, there's there's several people I know. In fact, one I'm thinking of particularly, who's been away from racing for ages. He was in Formula One for a long time. Uh, you know, the sport brings you back whether you right. like it or not. And it's like, right. oh, I've tried to get away from it. But yeah, hi, lads. <laughs> well, there's something about being part of, um, whether it's being part of an Olympic thing or one of the most common reasons why people re-enlist in the elite military units is because they don't want to leave their brothers or sisters like they 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 yeah. really genuinely believe and, and it's not an exact uh comparison but it, i think it fits for this i these are my people like we're in a battle and i they're vulnerable if i'm not there and they don't mean this from an egotistical they yeah. just mean like i'll stay up late with you i'll sweep the shop i'll like i you know i obviously want to provide for my family and i want to do this but most human beings if we can be part if our heart and our imagination can be captured by something um, and, and be part of something bigger than ourselves. And we can satisfy our economic and, you know, other requirements to get through life. It is a, uh, it's, it's a almost mystical religious experience to be able to do that, you know, and some people get to do it for a run, like on an Olympic team or something like that, but it's also got to be spectacularly stressful. I mean, you guys are measured, there's a to your point earlier about just driving to load the thing into the hauler costs money. So it's always bleeding money. You've got results that you've got to um, produce week in and week out, and you're living, you know, um, uh, very emotionally in this. If if I'm working to your point earlier, if I'm you bring the widget to the Boeing factory line, and maybe it gets accepted and maybe it doesn't, but I'm a senior engineer there. Eh, are they 2% profitable this year? 4% profitable? Are we edging Airbus out? Are we losing slightly? I'm still going home and going fly fishing this weekend. I'm not really thinking about it. I just want to be safe and excellent in my little position. Whereas if I'm on one of these teams, probably the way you describe it, by and large, most of these folks are, you know, watching the race, you know, animated and you know, anyway, I, I, I got to believe that that is a uh, pretty intense, but very vibrant way to live. It, it does. Some people are lifers, you know, oh, I'll do it for a couple of years. Yeah, they're forever. But yeah. it, it does spit people out at the end as well. People have given all that they've, they, they can give. And they just, <laughs> I don't want to sit at the back of a jet now every two weeks right. with my mates. I've, I've, I've done it. I've done my the, time. The, yeah. the tank is now empty. I'm going off to 
plant turnips or something yeah. but um <laughs> but you know it, it, it the, the candle needs to be both burning brightly and right. it needs to you know that's what 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 drives it everyone has to be looking at the the right yeah. target and at the end of the day motorsport is the target's quite straightforward you work for a big corporation and its profits and shareholders and bits of right. but motorsport you've got a vehicle it has to finish first on a sunday right it's a fairly straightforward mission isn't it at the end right. of the day so right. it, defining what builds it is obviously complicated but the final goal is 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 there for everyone to see whether it's the chief executive the driver or the guy who fills the coffee machine twice right. a week or whatever so it's a well, sport we have talked for a long time i want to end with this if you don't mind and that is um look we've talked about data analytics we've talked about electric vehicles racing we've talked about all of these things if i don't ask anybody what their 10-year vision is anymore but if you're to look in the near term what do you think if you were if for people who aren't very close to the sport said hey, what do you think the the next biggest or or the things that maybe exist now but are going to become more important where obviously we're still human beings i'm presuming in the car we're not going to have autonomous uh cars out there racing maybe but um not in the near future as you look at that paul what do you think um the big innovation or the big ideas or any big changes are going to be in the next few years, if anything. Well, when you say the human thing, they did try robo race a few years ago. And did they really? Quite, I didn't. It never, it never quite worked. I mean, they got a car to run and stuff, but it never really got, got the full um, package to, to, to be able to race them. So I think that's a possibility driverless mm -hmm. racing with autonomous systems, figuring out what the, autonomous idiot in front of you is going to do next right. but i think the thing that's coming and it, it it comes because motorsport can't entirely live in a bubble it likes to but it has to have a nod to the real world because that's where the loot comes from to pay for it so <laughs> electrification of powertrain and, and optimization of efficient efficiencies that can right. be taken from racing and whether it's on solar panels on buildings or the the way um food is produced or sure. uh, or um how to have less carbon emissions on your day-to-day -day transport or sure. or energy density density to power things that you know you don't have to plug in all the time motorsport's very very good it's a bit I mean, it's 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 sort of nastier brother in camouflage trousers is warfare. You know, mm. that's another scenario that it, right. that focuses technologies to to for an end goal. Motorsport's very good at that if it's allowed to do it. So those things that can be optimized for motorsport, but also extracted out to to you know, hey, make the world a better place. He says, <laughs> smiling with flowers and things. Right. The but let me ask you this. Um, Will the race, so part of the race is the experience. And what I mean by that is not just the sounds of the cars, but the the amount of time they're on the track. The, the um, you know, if I'm an investor in this, not only do I want to win, I want my name and my product zipping around for a while. I want it on the television. I want it in the uh, articles. I want it, I, I don't want to. I don't want the race, I don't think anyway, shorter because I don't have the ability, because I don't have enough energy density to 
to get it to be an hour and a half or two hour races. Do they change the format of the race as they manipulate this? Or is it just, yeah. I don't think it'll be entirely electrified for that very reason, but the hybrid element of it. So internal combustion with um, non-carbon fuels, so e-fuels or whatever they're called, synthetic fuels, Mm -hmm. um, synthetic lubricants that, you know, aren't created of crushed dinosaur, in right. addition to electrification so you know you're taking your um kia sportage uh-huh. and then putting it through a massive steroid program to create a vehicle that will race that is a combination of different um elements of of powertrain because right. again that's that's what would attract that's what has attracted ford to be part of red bull technologies right. you know they they has to be some sort of nod it has to be a halo technology that encourages people to buy a ford you know one f-150 or you know right. something it, something that's there that's coming down the line in five or six years that's electrified or has electrification or something on it right. that people oh yeah most well, yeah, so, i mean whether how true it all is but there people will pay money for to be involved in motorsport for that nod that you know that's what they're doing you know they don't want their logo to be upside down on fire that's not a good look is it so yeah. they're, they're trying to to be part ride the the train of of technology and innovation and success not everyone's going to do it because of course right. there's only one winner isn't there right. you know you you don't remember your second place guy again right. analogy but that that moment in time everybody lives and dreams for and hopes for to stand on a on a box holding a pot spraying sticky drinks at people you know that that's the capturing it you know you have the chief executive who just spent billions standing in the pit lane getting showered in champagne he's going to sign the check for the next five years isn't he because that's he's he's had the emotion it's it's very hard to get that on tv it's like going to a rock concert isn't it and um your band of choice is playing and then some band you know another act is brought up on stage to do two songs you can't buy that on cd or stream it or something you've got an emotional experience of watching two clashing people play guitar with each other and sing together for that moment it's those those things there they they, you can't bottle it it's the live sport element and you know all these things coming together and then people go oh Here's money. Do it again, please. Right. Well, it's certainly, it's one of those things that translates, um, even if not perfectly, it translates well and um, to the, to uh, television, to your point back in the mid seventies and seeing the, the colors and seeing it flash by for those of us in the States that don't have as rich a formula one experience or, or rally car um, uh, that they do in Europe. It's still such an amazing, I think it's genius that the streaming services have now reached out to these organizations and let us experience the drama, not just of the racing, but of the driver's personalities, the pettiness, sometimes the genius, the, the, um, the competing, who's really the heart and soul of this team. Is it the master crew chief? Is it the, is it the driver? who's manipulating the owner's affections and like all of it, all of that, you know, it's Sopranos with four wheels. It's so freaking awesome. And it's, uh, uh, but it also lets us see the um, incredible, incredible 
requirement to just get that car to the track. Um, and we, I, at least for me, I have a tendency and I should know better that car that's in 20th place that looks slow. It's faster. That driver is probably faster than a million other people that could have, you know, these are the fastest people on earth in that type of vehicle. And um, it's pretty remarkable. And Formula One now is, is probably as talented as it's ever been until almost now pay drivers have always existed i mean right. let's nicky lauder was a pay driver which is always sure. one of those clanking examples but yeah. he brought money to get his first drive he turned out to be quite talented in the end right. and you know got paid very well to to continue right. but until pretty much this year everybody has there's always been one at the back who's brought loads of cash from you know some oil company that their right. dad owns or something like that but there isn't now this is people are there on merit so right. you're looking at a sport that you think they've been racing Grand Prix cars since 1950. Well, pre-war, if, you, right. if you're being really pedantic about Grand Prix racing. Right. But Formula One's been going since 1950. It's probably as talented, as technically um, um, amazing, and as widely available as it's ever been, as you say, through streaming platforms and people having their heroes and villains. Right. And it, it's a soap opera with wheels and loud noises and huge budgets. But it's if it if it was just one element people are like yeah there's right. too many competing things for people to be interested in that you need the full picture to 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 keep the, right. the show going and the circus entertaining well paul webb thank you for joining us today we we talked about a lot nothing relevant nothing that you wanted to talk about <laughs> no, or thought you were going to, but yeah just get the guy talking you'll never shut up uh it was awesome thanks for uh thanks for joining us today i look forward to our next conversation well thanks thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure and uh, i you know that it's an endless topic of fun that you you, you it, that can be talked about and as people do yeah. often and and with new topics every time so yes thank Perfect. you thank you so much my great pleasure. Hey, if you enjoyed that conversation, like, and if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you everybody next time. Take care.